Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Does it feel like this is a, a distinct moment right now on the Hill? For me, it does. The last two plus years have been a nonstop series of distinct moments. Uh, you know, impeachment one, January 6th, impeachment two, COVID. And the newest distinct moment? The Instagram account blowing up Capitol Hill. Dear white staffers. When I say that everyone I talked to had either heard about or was following voraciously Dear White Staffers and all of those complaints and horrible stories of mistreatment on the Hill, that was pervasive. The Hill as I knew it three or four years ago does not exist anymore. I'm Annie Reese. This is Politico Dispatch. And today... I'm Catherine Tully-McManus. I'm a Congress reporter at Politico, and I write the Huddle newsletter. Reporter Catherine Tully-McManus on a movement that's been a long time coming on Capitol Hill, but has accelerated dramatically in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, there's a buzz. And that's a union for staffers who comprise the 535 distinct offices on the Hill. These offices are not corporations. There might be six, eight people who work for a lawmaker. So why staffers on Capitol Hill are trying to unionize and why their efforts have gotten more attention, including more high-profile endorsements, and gone farther than ever before. The account started as a place for staff of color on Capitol Hill to, in an often a comedic way, air the realities that they face in a extremely white, very homogeneous institution, usually through memes. Something that it highlights is for many, many years, for decades, generations and generations, the Hill could get away with that level of pay and that level of needing a connection on the Hill to get a job and things like that because people with resources could always make it work. Right. And what that had resulted in and what people have been raising the alarm about for my whole time on the Hill, which is close to 10 years, is what does that leave us in terms of a staff population that does not look at all like the demographics of this nation? So at what point do things get to more of a boiling point? In the past couple of weeks, I felt like there was this real breakthrough and it's gotten the attention of pretty much everyone on Capitol Hill, it seems like, and also a lot of the mainstream media. Yes, I will say that Dear White Staffers is part of a large group of these staff meme accounts. And last year, a different one didn't blow up to this degree, but definitely started stirring the pot when they just asked the simple question, what was your starting salary on Capitol Hill? Mm. And that took off to a point where there must be thousands and thousands of responses. I do think it's important to say, while I read these and they connect to verified, credible claims that I have heard in my decade on Capitol Hill, they are all anonymous and unvetted. Right. And you will see back and forth. You will see, no, I had a great experience at that office. Like, oh, no, I was tortured in that office. That was horrible. And it really is completely a free-for-all. And that that is definitely something to take into account. <laughs> and 
So at what point did unionizing really enter the conversation? I would say in the last year, uh, that has percolated on a couple of these staff accounts, you know, especially in a liberal space where Mm -hmm. politically, often people are pro-labor, pro-union. That's part of the political stance that many of these staff and lawmakers hold. Mm -hmm. There's still so many remaining questions, but Congressman Andy Levin, who introduced a resolution this week to extend that right to unionize to House staffers, he said, look, they've staff have been working on this for a long time. But when House Speaker Nancy Pelosi yeah. got in front of a mic and said, I would support that, we, we, we've done it other places, and I would support that happening here, it does sound, according to Congressman Levin, and according to the, the new organization that has formed, that staff kind of said, this is our moment. And maybe they did not have every duck in a row. They This was maybe not the launch that they planned. But when the most powerful Democrat in the House says they're behind you, these are political people. They know that you need to ride that momentum. What are the challenges? What are the unique challenges that Capitol Hill faces as a labor force to be unionized? Capitol Hill is an incredibly decentralized workplace. Yeah. One way to think about it is that every lawmaker, so all 535 House members, senators, plus committees, et cetera, every office is basically run like its own small business. Yeah. It has its own budget. It makes its own decisions about hiring, firing, you know, how to format your documents, time off. I mean, even um, parental leave until very recently. Oh, wow. That was the office down the hall could have six more weeks than what your office got for paid or unpaid parental leave. That was up to offices and lawmakers completely and chiefs of staff who are largely who implement most workplace policies on the Hill. I have heard a lot of people say, like, would there be 535 different unions? Some people are saying yes, but I've also heard other people say, no, that's a talking point that is being promulgated, frankly, by members and chiefs of staff because that decentralized nature keeps the power in the hands of a member or chief or other top aides in an office. I'm obviously not advocating one way or another. Those are just options that I've heard floated this week. Other challenges do include some of the realities of life on Capitol Hill are not going to be eliminated by any union contract. If the Senate is going to vote at midnight, some staff are going to have to be there at midnight. Yeah. But a comparison that I think has been aptly made is how different this will end up being from other federal unions, perhaps, where a lot of Hill staff think of a federal union as, you know, a one-hour lunch break, nine to five, where, first of all, tons of federal workers who don't work on that schedule who are unionized. Um, And there's tons of industries that what labor looks like in this day and age is very different than um, how many people think about it. And I think that is a big education point that the organizers are working on. I mean, journalism is one of them. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Are there some offices on the Hill that are already unionized? There are not offices of lawmakers, but there Mm -hmm. are agencies within the legislative branch that are unionized. Mm. The architect of the Capitol, which is, I mean, one of the most 
broad, wide-ranging institutions in the federal government. They, I mean, they have people who restore professional art that is like mm. on the walls and murals. They also have carpenters, plumbers. They have furniture makers. So some of those jobs are very traditional union jobs, trades, um, and others are less traditional. The tour guides who run the tours in the Capitol Visitor Center, they are unionized, as is the Library of Congress staff and the Government Accountability Office teams. But the differentiation was made uh, back in 1995 between those agencies and what was basically referred to as political staff. So people who work directly for a lawmaker were separated. So we've been talking about how one of the most consistent complaints has been staffer pay. So in terms of getting staffers raises, where does that money come from? How do pay level increases work on the Hill? So part of the decentralized management is that every office sets their own pay as is their right. All staff pay comes out of, in the House, what is called a member's representational allowance, an MRA. That is a fund that not only pays for staff salaries, but also pays for new laptops, a new printer, flights back and forth from the district for the member. And so if your office needs new laptops this year, that is coming out of the same bucket of money that your raise or your bonus could be coming out of. And part of the challenge with a pay raise is that that pot of money is set by an appropriations bill, which are held up every single year. We have not seen appropriations bills passed on time in since I was in <laughs> kindergarten. And in recent years, the legislative branch spending bill has been attached to the omnibus, which funds the entire federal government. So the what used to be an expedited, let's get this done, it's so simple, it's literally the fund for our offices and Capitol Police now gets stuck in whatever the political drama of the moment is, whether it's the border wall, whether mm. it's gas pipeline funding, things like that. Suddenly this has hitched a ride on the biggest expenditure that the country does every year um, and it gets held up and plenty of bosses will say we cannot get you a raise until that bill passes and that is a reality for some offices some offices do not spend all of their mra money and that is an ongoing frustration for staff that money is being left on the table that's so interesting. So ultimately, it seems like these union talks will continue and they want to keep the momentum, but it's a ways away. And it also kind of comes down to lawmakers passing this or not. I mean, we've seen a lot of House members come out in support, like you said, but you've also written that basically it's like a non-starter in the Senate. Yes. So in the House, there's a resolution that frankly seems like it has a lot of support. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is just a resolution that only needs to be has- passed in the House that only covers House employees. And all it does is give them the right to unionize. On the Senate side, as of right now, it is my understanding that it could be subject to the 60-vote filibuster threshold. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Republicans have voted against expanding 
collective bargaining rights for different industries across the country. And also Senator Joe Manchin on the Democratic side has said he is not sure this is necessary for staff on Capitol Hill. So Democrats cannot even guarantee they have all 50 of their caucus in line. We may see the majority leader, Chuck Schumer, do what he has done before, which is bring something to the floor to get people on the record. Mm. But political capital is... There's not usually a lot to spare in a midterm election year when Democrats are going to, you know, try to hold on with white knuckle grip to their majority. That might be floor time and clout that he isn't able to burn politically. Catherine Tillin McManus, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Also today, President Joe Biden said on Thursday that he had thoroughly reviewed about four, quote, well-qualified and documented candidates to fill Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer's seat on the bench. On the campaign trail, Biden vowed to nominate the first black woman to the Supreme Court. And while the world watches Russia's tanks and troops, Russian naval buildup near Ukraine is growing. Over the past few weeks, Russia has pulled warships from across the globe as part of one of the largest displays of naval firepower since the Cold War. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to follow Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people find the show. Dispatch's senior editor is Ragumanavalan, and our senior producer is Jenny Ament. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening.